from Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. With special guests, David Ralph of Heart of the Southwest LEP. Certainly when I do stop working, which I hope won't be too far away, I aim to head a long way away in a boat at some point. My wife's not so keen, but try and do that. And Gavin Jones of Elixir. I would say if you have the opportunity to start something straight out of university, yeah, take the opportunity. Definitely easier to do it then than now. I mean, we're all houses and kids and families now. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, and welcome to another edition of our In Conversation With podcasts, coming to you from the Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth. And today I'm speaking to David Ralph, who's the Chief Executive of the Heart of the Southwest LEP. Hi, David. Hi, Stuart. Thanks so much for joining us. And I wanted to get some worky stuff out of the way. People may not have even heard of a LEP. Can you tell the business, what's a LEP? What do you do? What is it all about? Yeah, about eight or nine years ago, the government wound up the regional development agencies and they were still keen to make sure that they had business involved in the future economic direction and strategy of places so they established local enterprise partnerships there are 38 across England and the one that covers this patch is covers Somerset and Devon and it's called the heart of the southwest LEP and I've been the chief executive of that for about two and a half years there are other LEPs there's one in Cornwall there's one in Dorset there's one up in the west of England but the one for us Somerset and Devon is heart of the southwest and is this the same as a powerhouse is it the same as the northern powerhouse no one of the frustrations and challenges of my job is a jargon and, and B, so many geographies we work in. So I think a powerhouse is different. So we've heard of things like the Northern Powerhouse and the Midlands Engine, and we're certainly very keen to make sure there is something similar in the Southwest. And I think they are more about brands. I think they're particularly around attracting trade and investments. I think they could also be about a common challenge of really significant scale. So the one I'm really interested for the Southwest is how we respond across the Southwest to climate change and how we can make some economic advantage out of that, as well as some of the sort of advantage to all the communities. So a powerhouse is different. We are actively promoting, I think, the Great Southwest, working with Cornwall and Dorset, and we think there are particular issues on the peninsula that we should be doing and developing collectively. Yeah, and as you know, I'm a big supporter of that. You touched on this, the sort of geography and political makeup of the region must make your job very hard. How would you like to see that change? What would the perfect structure to you be? So it's something I've done for many, many years, and it's important that, I mean, LEPs are part of the architecture of government. So whilst I'm not a civil servant, I do face directly into government sponsoring department for communities and also business. So I do a lot of work with government officials, with MPs, with ministers around trying to turn government policy into delivery locally. But then we also face in locally. So the board that I work to is made up of local authorities, the majority of members of business, but also universities, colleges, the community and voluntary sector. So it's quite a broad brush. It is never easy working across political geographies and political boundaries. I think personally, there is a degree of lining these things up with some of the administrative boundaries, whether they be local authorities or health boundaries or police or whatever, because otherwise you spend your whole time overlapping on geographies. So I think that would be perfect to have greater alignment of both administrative and sort of economic development areas. And then secondly, I think it would be one of my real jobs is to try and get everybody pointing in the same direction. And I think we've done some quite good work around that in the last couple of years to get people really focusing on not just growth, but trying to make sure that our growth is sustainable 
response to climate change. And also, over the past 20 or 30 years, we probably as an area have slightly underperformed in terms of our potential. But also, there are many people in many communities who haven't benefited from growth. So we've done well in certain areas but less well in other areas. And I think we are becoming increasingly focused on saying that isn't acceptable going forward. Yes, we want to grow. Yes, we want to provide a strong economy. But we have to try and make sure that all our communities benefit from that growth. Well, that's fantastic. I mean, it's a big job. I'm going to take you back. How do you go from school leaver to chief executive of the Heartless Southwest LEP? So I was very lucky, actually, in that I wanted to do this sort of role from quite a young age. So from very, very young, I thought I want to help places grow. I sometimes call it being like a doctor, but my patient is an area. <laughs> so I'm trying to make my area better. And I've worked in a number of different parts of the country to do that. And prevention is better than cure. So I'm trying to enable things to happen before they get bad. But I have spent at least 10 or 15 years in some quite challenging housing estates where things sometimes you know, have got really serious and really problematic trying to support people develop their skills or their housing or whatever. So I trained actually originally as a town planner and I did my initial job in London actually as a town planner and I quite enjoyed that but I quickly got into delivering projects. I actually quite like a bit of challenge and being a regulator didn't particularly interest me so part of the planning responsibility is, is regulating planning. I was more interested in making things happen. So I started off doing a big town centre programme in London. I still think one of my greatest achievements was to get the Docklands Light Railway from Canary Wharf through Greenwich to Lewisham, which is where I was working. And after that, I was particularly interested in social change. So I worked on a lot of disadvantaged housing estates in London and in Bristol. And then more recently, and partly to do with the change of government, actually, in sort of 2000s, it became all about opportunities rather than need. And I got into sort of doing this regional working, but all my jobs have worked pretty much with governments on trying to deliver some of their key programs. So I've done things like HS2. I've worked very closely with some of our ports at Felixstowe. I've worked with BT in their research centre at Astral Park. I've worked in the Midlands, etc. So I've been lucky enough to work in very different places. And I actually quite enjoy seeing different places and how they operate. And clearly you're now working in the best part of the country. Lots of places argue that they're the best, but <laughs> I'm very happy working in the southwest. I do think it's important not just to say we are the best. I think we have to have a really investable proposition. And quite often I go to places and I ask them to tell me what their pitch is mm. and they struggle. They just say, well, yeah. why wouldn't you want to be here? And absolutely. But I could probably point to parts of the Peak District that are equally beautiful. I could probably point to other parts of the country that have stronger support around supporting businesses, whether it be innovation or research or whatever. I do recognize why wouldn't you want to live and work in the Southwest? It is a fantastic place to be. But I'm very much in the camp of you also have to make it investable and you have to make it really compelling as a place to do business. I completely agree. I think post-COVID there's huge opportunities for the Southwest as people realize they don't have to be working in a metropolis. They can live and work in the area they want to. You know, the digital world has shown us that if we have the right connection we can work anywhere. But I also agree with you that you have to have a proposition. I think for too long, the Southwest has said, oh, we want our fair share, but of what and why? And that's the big question. It's funny you say you feel like you're a doctor, I suppose. If Devon is your patient, what is currently wrong with it? What would you improve? And what is its potential? One of the challenges in Devon and sort of the whole greater Devon really is that, and it's also one of its opportunities, it is dominated by small and medium-sized enterprises and micros. So it's a big set of businesses to support. 
across quite a number of different fields. So we've got you know real strengths in digital and particularly around environmental science, obviously tourism, obviously farming and agriculture and all those things. So some of the challenges are some of those are quite low value businesses and some of them people don't even want to grow that much. If you run a B&B at the seaside, you don't particularly want to grow, you just want to run a good quality business. But I still think whilst the product of our tourism community is outstanding, it can be better. So we are absolutely in a very competitive world, need to really work hard about improving our attractions or continuing to improve our attractions and particularly operating off season, extending the season going away. So that would be a real challenge for our our community. And the second thing generally is about, we are a long way from London. If you want people to particularly talent to stay here or move here at a young age, you have to provide a quality of job and a quality of experience. Now we've got the experience, but actually in some ways, if you're moving out of the home counties or you live locally, you are likely to put yourself in a city because it's less risky, particularly if you're thinking about your second or your third job. So we need to make a density of particular jobs in this part of the world that attracts people. So A, you get some bouncing ideas off each other. And we get a lot of that, for example, in Plymouth and Marine. So there's a real focus on Marine there. But also we need to be stronger about creating centres of excellence where people can come and go, well, actually, if I do that job for two or three years, there might be another job for me to go on to in the future. And I think what we've seen recently, and it's interesting you raised COVID because I think we are seeing some of this stuff accelerate, is certainly people were willing to leave London and the home counties to go to Bristol and go to some of the other major cities because it still felt, you know, that big sort of urban conurbation was reachable. Mm. I think possibly through COVID, we will see people being able to go slightly further away because of the ability to work from home more. And that is a real big opportunity for us. So I'm very optimistic about what we can offer. But I think we have to create these nodes of excellence in our science parks with our research institutions to encourage you know, our talent to really want to live here uh, for the job proposition as well as the lifestyle proposition. Absolutely. And of course, young people want the lifestyle, they want the experience, but they've got to have the good job that goes with it. Absolutely. And we can offer both. And I think we do offer both. And I don't think we should undersell it. I think we need to make that visible. And, you know, we know a lot of people come to this part of the world when they've got families and they're feeling a bit more settled, etc. But we should be retaining our talent. So it might be through startups. So I think there will be an opportunity post-COVID to do more startups. That is more high risk, but I think young people may have to do that. But also around getting people to network and things like Tech Southwest, Chambers of Commerce, etc., where people can network and they can come together and they feel part of a business community. I think it is really, really important. We want people to go and establish good quality companies to lead those companies, and we need to support them in doing that. Well, and thank you for the plug for Chambers. Of course, I would agree. Still to come, Gavin Jones of Elixir. I think as long as people keep coming to me saying i need help i need support i want to do something exciting then the energy is going to continually to be there to grow follow the devon and plymouth chamber of commerce on twitter at chamber underscore devon and search for us on linkedin make sure you don't miss out on future episodes hit subscribe now we sort of touched on this a bit earlier but the leveling up agenda what is our ask in the southwest and do you really think we're going to get the sort of investment down here that we feel are sort of being paying off the borrowed votes in the north so i think we've done a lot of work in the last couple of years on our proposition and i do think we have something compelling around our key centers of excellence whether they be marine aerospace and aviation it's been challenged by covid but there's still a strong community of those industries marine environmental science etc so i think we've done a lot of work around saying that's where we need to focus going forward and my biggest strategic concern 
is that however strong our proposition at the moment, the Southwest is being overlooked and isn't seen as being somewhere which, for whatever reason, this government seeks to invest. And I think there are two or three things going on. So one is the focus on nations. So levelling up, that there is a big political concern about devolution of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland. And there is a focus around that. So that would be the first category. The second would be around, and I have some sympathies around this, and it comes back to the point about not all people have benefited from growth. We have been incredibly reliant on London and the South East for UK PLC. And I think there is a move now to say that's not in the long term sustainable and we need to support our regions. Politically, that's turned into a conversation about the North and the Midlands, and I think it equally applies to parts of the South West. So I would argue there's, as well as a North-South divide you often hear spoken about, there is probably a West-East divide as well. And then I think the third thing is around, are we hungry for it? So I think we have such a good lifestyle here in the Southwest. <laughs> we enjoy ourselves. It is the playground. So one's immediate thought around the Southwest, it is not an area lacking vibrancy or need whereas actually if you go to some of the parts of the midlands and the north you can see evidence of poor areas etc and there is some of that here but it's a bit more hidden Mm. so we're a little bit out of sight and out of mind and therefore we have to double our effort in reminding people that there are lots of communities here that haven't benefited and generally we don't perform at that level that we should be able to perform that across the patch. I agree. And I think our business members would be delighted to hear you say that. I think we feel that we are somewhat overlooked. And I know in the past we've said that, but without evidence of what we really need. And as you say, we now have a proposition. You know, what you're doing there is a very challenging job, pulling all this together, dealing with multiple partners. But you must have to read a lot of papers. How do you get the time? How do you retain all that information? How do you herd this particular set of cats? You're going to hear some of my pet truths really now. So yeah, there is a lot of reading of stuff. And I do read a lot of it, actually. don't read all of it, but I do read a lot of it. I'm quite engaged in it. I talk about a 24-7 job. You know, I'm not an workaholic, but I do lead an organisation which I'm constantly thinking about, and I am handling a lot of different things. And I think I have got some experience about handling lots of things at the same time, but also it's something I quite enjoy. I do like having lots of things on the go at any one time. I've got a fabulous team around me, both in terms of my board, who are very willing to lead work. So I'm on a big sort of programme at the moment about really empowering my board members to lead. And I think they are the business people. They know what's going on. They know what good looks like. So we're doing a lot of work with them about getting greater leadership from the business board members. And we had a new chair a year ago, and that's something that we really signed up to. And I think we're making some progress in that. And then secondly, I haven't got loads of staff, but I've got a few staff. And one of the things I do actually is, and I've got to be careful how I phrase this, I don't try and do too much myself. I think my job is around leadership. and My job is around directing and supporting and coaching sometimes mentoring. So I do, I think, delegate. Sometimes I think I (laughs) probably tell people to do it. But I'm very keen to give my staff some power Mm. so that they are developing some ideas and thoughts. And I can help channel that and articulate that and support them in that. Now, I don't think I do that right all the time. And don't get me wrong, I think in my role, I have a lot of influence Mm. and a lot of bearing. I think visibility around the patch is quite important for me personally. But I am very reliant on people across the local authorities and across my team to tell me things that are going on. And, you know, I can look to act on some of that. So, yes, I do have a lot of reading to do. But actually, I'm really interested in action. I'm really interested in getting things done. Mm. I'm really interested in transforming things. I'm not a very good steward of the status quo. I like to get things done. I like to move things forward for a good reason. And I like things to be done properly because I think bad policy 
leads to bad implementation, which leads to bad outcomes. Yeah. And I do think what I do is important, mm-hmm. and therefore I value strong outcomes. And it's a privilege, a bit like me. I feel privileged to represent the business community in Devon. You've got to be aware that there are other people who'd love to do that job, so you've got to put the effort in, haven't you? Yeah, I have a quite a serious sense of responsibility as well, and say I like it done properly around what I do. Mm. I think I do okay at it, not always, but I think I do okay at it. And I absolutely recognise that there are very capable people out there. Most people say, what you do, David, is quite hard. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's quite frightening being in the world of politics. But generally, I think actually it is a privilege to be able to do it. And what I really like about my job is I can see change. You know, I get things built. I see communities improve. I can really go and touch success sometimes. And that's very empowering to me is when you can go and see the net benefit of your results. I think that's a privilege to be able to be able to do that sometimes. And you've said you're not a workaholic. So how do you switch Absolutely off and not. relax? Where are we going to find you? Are you trudging across the moors? How does David Ralph chill out? So I'm a runner. Well, I try to run. I'm really invested in what we sometimes call the natural capital, but I sort of call landscape, really. So I spend a lot of time either on water or in it. I do a lot of sailing. I've done transatlantic. I've done fastener. I've done lots of cross-channel sailing races, more in my youth than I have. I tend to slow down a bit as you get older. And the further I get away from land when I'm sailing, the happier I am. So if I'm out of sight of land, I'm really happy, actually. So blue water sailing. And certainly when I do stop working, which I hope won't be too far away, I aim to head a long way away in a boat at some point. My (laughs) wife's not so keen, but try and do that. I also am a runner, so I do a lot of trail running quite slowly now. So every year, some mates and myself, we do a sort of a trail marathon every year. And obviously, we've been able to do that this year. Some people would have heard the Grizzly. So I did that in February, just before lockdown. So that felt like a pretty good one. That's 22 miles. I've done the Mont Blanc Ultra. And we look like we're heading out to Europe again to go and do something in the Alps, but not just one day, multiple days. And also in my youth, I was a very active climber. So I've climbed Mont Blanc and I've spent three summers in the Alps. I do a lot of skiing as well, actually, when I can. And I always think sailing, climbing, I always talk about navigating difficult terrain mm. safely. And I'm not very brave, so I've been scared a couple of times in my climbing life. Yeah. Two and a half years ago, I went to the Himalayas and did some trekking. I've done that two or three times. And I've been to the Andes and things. So there is something that I quite like about, I think it affects my job as well a bit, that I quite like going through difficult terrain. It's quite important to me that you do it safely. Mm. I'm not a hero. But actually, I really quite enjoy the challenge of doing that. And if you come out of it absolutely knackered and seen some beautiful landscape and stuff like that, that's pretty appealing to me generally. So that's probably where I'm coming from. So you say you're not a hero. Who are your heroes? Certainly mountaineers, you know, real heroes of mine. Doug Scott, Hamish McInnes, people like that. You know, I was of that sort of 80s era where you put on a pair of boots and you just went climbing. It's all a bit rock star now, but I'm still a traditional, what they call a trad climber. Although it's hard to put my weight up most things nowadays. <laughs> and then some of the sailors... When I go climbing, when I go sailing, when I go running, I will wear the oldest gear of anybody I do it with or I use the oldest gear. I'm not into modern gear. I will put on an old pair of walking boots, a tracksuit, and if I'm lucky, I might have a coat. And I will go walking and I'll get wet, I'll get cold. But I'm happier doing that than I am having all modern facilities and everything else. So I'm probably a traditionalist at heart. But in some ways, I ought to be a bit wiser and buy some decent gear. I'm too stingy, actually. And go out and enjoy it more that way. <laughs> yeah, I did it the other way around. I got into diving. And as my friend said, I had all the gear and no idea. I bought all the very latest in everything. And it doesn't make you a good diver in the same way. Having all the best boat and kit doesn't make you a good sailor, does it? No. And as I say, I don't mind going slowly when I'm sailing. I like to be going in, in the right direction i think i'm no idea and also no gear either so <laughs> i wouldn't want to claim anything else really well i don't think 
think you can have survived that many adventures without having some idea. So just before we wrap up, though, what do you want your legacy to be when you do finally retire? Although you don't strike me as the sort of person who's going to retire anytime soon. But if you do, what do you want your legacy to be? What will you consider a success? I've really been lucky in that I've done some great things. I think in all places I've worked in, I look back pretty fondly with what I achieved. Whenever I start a job, I set out you know, at least half a dozen things I want to try and achieve. And I normally sort of do it in three, four year cycles. So I have got a history of, I don't tend to stay in jobs more than about five or six years. And I've been a chief exec now for over 20 years. And I've done sort of four different roles as, as different chief execs. So I tend to work in sort of cycles. And they are very much about me understanding the challenge in the first year. I am interested in transformation. And then I start to make it happen in the second, third and fourth, we're flying. And then fifth, there is always a conversation in my mind about, you know, am I up for the next challenge or actually is it time to pass on to someone else and things like that. So that tends to be a pattern. I'm very clear in the Southwest, actually, that I think there are two issues, really. So one is we need to be at the forefront of responding to climate change. It is something that we have absolute assets, both in research and business capability in our part of the world, whether it's marine, whether it's simply we've got masses of coastline for us to work with and great natural landscapes, etc., for us to work in. We've got some absolutely cracking businesses in this sector. So we ought to be at the forefront of helping the government deliver its COP26 stuff. And I cannot see why I can't get greater recognition from government that the Southwest can absolutely play its role in that. I don't think that's just a Somerset and Devon issue. I think that applies equally to other parts of the Southwest at all. So that would be the big thing about being right at the front of response to climate change, delivering responses to climate change emergency, etc. And then the second thing is that I'm really keen that I talk about teams within teams. So what matters to me is that the people who I work with, I help achieve their potential. So I'm hopeful that some of the people in my team will grow and they'll go on to do better and great things. But their experience of working with me will be that they had the opportunity to develop themselves and improve their skills. And people work for different reasons. They work for different motivations. And I spent quite a lot of time thinking about that. And I am most interested in people who want to grow and develop. But I'm also very happy if people just simply want to do a job and get on with it. So I hope that I leave a legacy of people who've worked with me or for me who are feeling they had the opportunity to really thrive and develop their skills. And I think over the last year, that's been quite difficult, actually, because we've missed a bit of face-to-face and we've missed a bit of that sort of interaction. But I hope that will be one of my legacies, yeah. Well, David, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thanks so much for giving up your time for joining us and for being a supporter and fan of the Chamber. We really do appreciate it. And thanks so much for your time. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you. And now, Chambermaid, introducing business owners from across the Southwest. Hello there and welcome back to part two of our In Conversation with Chamber podcast. This is the section called Chamber Made, where we speak with various members about their businesses and their story of how they've started and what they've done. And I'm delighted today to be joined by Gavin Jones from Elixir. Hello, Gavin. Hiya, how you doing? Yeah, I'm good, thank you. And thank you so much for giving up your time to join us and telling us a bit about Elixir and your journey. So, Elixir, how long have you been going? Eight years now. I mean, nine years and a few months. So hopefully in about a year, when we're finally out of lockdown, there'll be a big sort of 10-year party. I am available for parties, by the way. (laughs) We do love a good party. So, yeah, always any sort of celebration. Yeah, I can't wait to get out of this lockdown. So where did the idea for Elixir come from? Do you remember that moment where you decided to go for it? Elixir actually started out of Plymouth University. So four founders kind of met in our first year back in 2008. We're working together on various projects throughout 
our university course, went away for placement. We didn't know whether anyone was actually going to come back from placement. <laughs> a couple of the guys had some pretty good roles set up for themselves. And then everyone came back in their final year. And we ended up having a venture culture module at the uni where we looked at the opportunity of creating a business. Mm. And we all got together and it just fit. And the team fit because we're so used to working together. And then from doing that part of the course, we were in a three-month space and formation zone, which was the incubation space at the university at the time. Yeah. And so obviously some business support there. So it really helped kind of kickstart the business in its infancy, really. Was it easier or harder, do you think, to start straight out of university? So you hadn't got that sort of leaving a job, leaving an income stream, but also it's a big, scary world out there. It's a weird one, isn't it? I think a lot of people say it is a brave move to kind of make that leap. But I can look at it and go, well, we've got no commitments. No, we've got no mortgages. Actually, nothing really to fear. No real like business. There's the challenges you've got no experience and no real world experience mm. from kind of running a business. So there are challenges there. But actually, it's fairly low risk. We saw it as an opportunity. Only good things can come of it. And if it lasted a year, then we've had a year's worth of experience of meeting people, building up relationships and kind of building something, which is ultimately really, and we saw it as being an invaluable opportunity. So yeah, I would say if you have the opportunity to start something straight out of university, I would say, yeah, take the opportunity. But yeah, definitely easier to do it then than now. I mean, we're all houses and kids and families now. So the pressure gradually builds up the more commitments you start building. Yeah. And not that I'm trying to worry you, but more to lose as well. So it yeah. keeps you hungry, I guess. Looking back now, if you could go back and whisper in your own ear for eight years ago, old Gavin to, sorry not old older Gavin to younger Gavin <laughs> what would older Gavin tell younger Gavin I'd like to say I'd tell myself not to take things too seriously but I think that's generally been my ethos throughout my life <laughs> anyway <laughs> I think it's probably just try and learn as much as you can as much as possible I think one thing if I was going to have any regrets it's probably not nurturing some of the relationships that I've had along the years as much as I could have done running a business is so much about the people and I think with this lockdown and everything's been going on we're noticing that more and more in regards to how important those relationships are and keeping those connections moving and working so i think for me it's yeah look after those connections that you built over the time i think early on in our business we picked up some amazing clients we worked for avato in our second year which is a multi-billion pound organization and we delivered the project but didn't then like push any further for like mm. more work and that was kind of our i guess the juvenile nature of our business and the way that we were from a business mm. point of view but if we had kind of looked after that relationship and nurtured that relationship a little bit more that it probably could have kicked the business a little bit further forward earlier on, I would have thought. I think that's really important. I mean, I have come to realise it's all about relationships. Yeah. It's all about building and maintaining good relationships. And there's a great community of people in the city and the county to have relationships with and to grow together with. Yeah, and I think that's the beauty of the network as well. The beauty of the chamber is no matter what level you are in business, from the events that you're running, we can kind of find ourselves in a situation where we get to see each other. Obviously, it's been a bit of a challenge with lockdown, but obviously still been running the events. But just being able to catch up with people, make new connections. And I think it's important whenever you're looking at a networking point of view is it's not about selling to the people in the room. It's about building relationships with people in the room mm. and getting to know them and getting to know you and building that trust. And if then you meet 10 people and each of those kind of have conversations, one of them might have a conversation with someone else who's like, actually, I know the perfect person who can do a job. And we picked up huge clients from networking locally in seemingly businesses, which are a lot smaller than the people that we might end up working with. But because they've worked so hard, they've built their networks and that they're trusted. There are real opportunities there. Yeah, it's all about the network, isn't it? So on this eight-odd-year journey, what have been the highest highs and the lowest lows? I think the lowest is really difficult. I can't really pinpoint anything which I look at and looking back going, gosh, that was a terrible time because we've been quite fortunate. And I think that's part of probably not taking work too seriously. And I want to say too seriously, I don't want to sound like I'm not taking business too seriously, it's just that 
I think it's really important to enjoy what you do, love what you do and enjoy it. If you're doing something you're not enjoying, then there's something you're not doing that's quite right and something yeah. you need to change. But I mean, a couple of years ago, one of our directors made the decision that he may wanted to be part of the business. He felt he reached his end, end of that period of working with us. And that was a tough one to take because we were friends and when we were like really enjoyed each other's time. But I think it just looked at it and go, actually, maybe it is the right time. And I think we just basically supported each other. And although it was an initial tough conversation, actually, we're both in much stronger positions from that change happening. And the business has gone on from something to something. He's flourishing in his new role. And I think by looking at that and going, actually, no, that is the right decision for you. Yeah. What can we do to support you and help you make that transition? And that was really important for us. But yeah, so although it was a challenging time, probably for us in regards to quite a big shakeup, I think we came through it much stronger. I understand that completely. There are times in business when things look like they're going to be a total catastrophe. And actually, mm. you look back and go, well, I'm glad that happened because it sorted us out. In one way or another, it forced a development of the business, I guess. Yeah, definitely. If you'd like to feature on a future episode of In Conversation With, send an email to info at freshairstudios.com. Has anyone inspired you in this journey? Have you got sort of business idols or even personal idols or just other businesses you are inspired by? I think the beauty of what we do, our main area specializes in building digital products, whether that's mobile apps or whether that's websites. So we spend our days talking to people who are looking to launch new businesses. And I think that means that every time we have a new conversation, we're always talking to people who are really excited and really inspired and in different areas. And I think then when you're in those scenarios, you're always being inspired from day to day from the people that you're talking to. And we've got one client who's launched a recipe app. A couple, we worked developed together to launch a recipe app, mainly focusing towards cancer sufferers. And the strength that she shows through the challenges that she's had from losing her husband at an early age to cancer and then getting a brain tumor herself and the strength that she showed to persevere through that and then still drive to help people. I think that's one of those inspiring stories when you speak to people and it's more than just the standard corporate side. It's kind of, yeah, it's next level kind of those kind of conversations are next level inspiring because they've had really tough times and it really puts everything into perspective really when you're like, actually, some of the challenging times I've had haven't been as challenging as that. No, absolutely. You know, I've asked that question of a lot of people, you know, who inspires you and almost without exception, people won't name just one person or one business. Yeah. They'll say, it's just a load of people on the way, you know, people you've met, yeah. people who are really engaging, people who are passionate about what they do. And like you you know meeting all these new startup businesses and i feel privileged to do what i do because i meet some fascinating people who do amazing things and speaking of which plymouth has an amazing digital sort of culture doesn't it i mean you run digital plymouth the network yeah so we're one of the co-founders of digital plymouth i think that was one of the things when we started there's not that many digital businesses here Mm. and then the more we network the more locally we realize there's loads of digital businesses here they're just not a place for them to go and meet and to raise awareness of what they're doing Mm. there was a tech report that used to happen each year called tech nation Mm. and they used to see all the tech clusters around the city and it used to go to Truro and Red Roof and then to jump to Exeter. Mm. And they were like, wait a second, there's so much happening here. So as part of this network, we rallied around and got everyone kind of running these events, get everyone connected and getting them to fill out surveys and getting them involved. And we managed to get Plymouth on that map from a, from a national point of view and actually start sort of pushing to where it needs to be from mm. a position um, nationally. We've got so much going on in the city at the moment. It's such an exciting place to be, even through the challenging times that we're having, like from the amazing stuff that's going on with Plymouth Sound and um, to the amazing work that's going on at Derriford. It's super interesting stuff going on in low carbon Devon and the work they're doing to kind of create a 
greener area and greener city. But it's really exciting to see these amazing things that are happening and the people locally just driving stuff forward and, and wanting to kind of really show the city for the amazing place it is. Well, I'm really glad you say that because I feel exactly the same. So many exciting things going on. I really get frustrated by the naysayers when I think, well, have you not opened your eyes and looked around at some yeah. of these fabulous things? And even in these difficult times, obviously, we wouldn't have wished this pandemic on anyone. But the things that have come out of it in terms of accelerated digital use and how we're driving that side of business forward and how we've shown that this region is a fantastic place to do business and actually you can do business anywhere if you're digital yeah that's one thing that we've it's been a really sobering experience for us i think although we're based here in the city we do have remote team we have someone in swindon at portsmouth and down in cornwall as well uh, we do work remotely but it's amazing to see what you can do and how you can expand those team and work in different areas and part of one of the work that bits of the work i'm doing with digital plymouth i've been having lots of conversations with people who work remotely all over the country but they're based here in Plymouth and usually they're drawn down here from their family and those those connections and it shows the fact that they want to live down the city but they want to live down here and I think that's one thing that as a city we've got a really big opportunity here to go actually this is the place that you want to live mm. and live and work we're showing the fact that you can work here live and work here the big businesses don't have to be here necessarily and we have got some huge organizations here but you should be able to work wherever you want to live rather than necessarily the other way around. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's early in your journey, really, I suppose. I mean, eight years of feral time, but do you have an end goal for Elixir? Do you know where you're going or are you still enjoying the ride? We're still driving it forwards. We've kind of made a big shift from when our previous director left. We brought in a brand new shareholder who brings in some real clout and expertise. As part of his, he also owns an app development house in Portsmouth and a 400-strong development house in Warsaw in Poland as well. So what that means is the shape of the work that we can be delivering has scaled massively. So when we are pitching to those larger clients, we've not just got a really strong kind of design and build capability in-house. We can then go, actually, let's scale this development team up to whatever you need it to be to deliver this project. So it really does kind of shift the way the business works. So I think it's still early days in regards to where we are in our journey. We're still working on developing and building new products and services to kind of help our clients to really progress and move things forward. Again, we're quite lucky we get people coming to us saying, look, we need help, we need support, I want to do something exciting. And I think as long as people keep coming to me saying, I need help, I need support, I want to do something exciting, then the energy is going to continually to be there to grow as well. So everyone always talks when you're having business conversations around exit strategy. I've not nailed down an exit strategy. Not nailed down an exit strategy. I think for me, I love what I do. And I also, I'm driving in my personal life as well. And outside looks, I'm also driving and building new products and services as well. So it's multifaceted for me. I'm always busy. Excellent. Well, yeah, nobody says you've got to have the exit strategy. It's just for some businesses and some structures of business, it's worth thinking about. I mean, yeah. the old story about the accountant who comes to retire and he's got a sort of million pound turnover business, yeah. but it's worth nothing because it's him. He's got no yeah. brand, you know, he's got a list of customers. But so that's why people talk about an exit strategy. But if yeah. you're loving it and the journey's good, why not continue? So just to wrap up, if you have one piece of advice from our listeners, maybe something you've learned on this so far in your journey, what would it be? I think it's bringing it back to people again. I think that's the most important thing. I think there's lots of organizations who say they're people centric, but I think it's going down that next level whenever you're looking at a decision you want to make whether that's with something digital that you're doing or not it's thinking about who are the people this is going to impact whether that's people in my team or whether that's my clients and thinking about how it impacts them how this change is going to impact them mm. a lot of the work we do is basically having that exact conversation people go i want to build this product and service and we go but why mm. who is it for and what problem does it solve and that process happens whether you're doing marketing whether you're doing product whether you're looking at how you can better 
drive your business forward and how you can improve the service that you offer. If you're thinking about the people that you're serving and what their needs are and how you fit in their journey as a business, then you'll be in a really strong position. So yeah, just think about people. I think you're absolutely right. And it's great to hear that a digital business is thinking about people. I think people worry that digital is somehow divorced from the real world and that it's not about people. And Mm. so I'm really pleased and heartened to hear you say that. Gavin, thanks so much for giving up your time. Thanks for all you're doing around the digital Plymouth bit and all you're doing for pushing that side of business. And thanks for being an integral part of the chamber and a friend of the chamber. We do appreciate it. And thanks very much, Gavin from Elixir. Thank you. In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios. Full audio production services for podcasts, live links and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpott. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.